Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. As we cry out to God our Father for protection, we also uh, turn to Him to confess our sins. We'll continue in Psalm 37 this morning uh, for the call to confession from the litany. So hear God's word from verse 9 through 17, Psalm 37. Evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. The wicked plots against the just, and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy, to slay those who are of upright conduct. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. A little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. Thus far the reading of God's word this morning. These words vividly describe some of the headlines that we see today. As policemen are assaulted, as statues are torn down, and so on. A rage has been let loose in our land that is discouraging and scary. But God's perspective is this. Don't worry about it. Their day is coming. They can't do that much damage from an eternal perspective. Our call is to be meek, to rest and delight in the Lord, to not envy or fret at those getting away with awful things. This is hard for us to take. Many of the news sources and the podcasts, maybe, that we read and listen to try very hard to induce you, to induce me, to anger and fretting. We must be very careful. Being angry at wickedness is easy, and it quickly turns into self-righteousness. God calls for more. God tests and he strengthens our faith, asking, will we really trust him with this land, if, even if it goes up in flames? Or will we turn to ungodly means to fight fire with fire? Will we maintain a holy urgency and earnest action that flows from trusting God with our lives and our land? This is our call. It's uh, convicting but it's the way God calls us to walk. Let's confess our sins before Almighty God. I encourage you to kneel if you're able, and we'll read the prayer that's printed in the bulletin together this Lord's Day. We turn back in the Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 2 for our sermon text. We're going to start at verse 11. Again, hear God's inerrant word. Then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, 
the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, Give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. And if the man said to him, They should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires. He would then answer him, No, but you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Therefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. But Samuel ministered before the Lord, even as a child, wearing a linen ephod. Moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year when she came with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, The Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was given to the Lord. Then they would go to their own home. And the Lord visited Hannah, so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father, because the Lord desired to kill them. And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor, both with the Lord and men. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, in Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering? which I have commanded in my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me, to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people. Therefore the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming, that I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. And you will see an enemy in my dwelling place, despite all the good which God does for Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. But any of the, your men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age." Now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons, on Hophni and Phinehas. In one day they shall die, both of them. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before my anointed forever. 
And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread and say, please put me in one of the priestly positions that I may eat a piece of bread. Thus far the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but this word of God stands forever. And God's people said, Amen. Well, the old joke always goes that on Mother's Day, pastors say all good things about mothers. And then on Father's Day comes around, and we really rip into the fathers really hard, right? That's always the, the cliche. And this uh, text has been a bit of a challenge for me this week, because this man of God who comes to Eli really lights him a new one. Uh, but we're going to uh, consider the text uh, and only uh, address fathers in passing today. Uh, first, consider that we have overlapping uh, chiasms here. Remember the whole chiasm thing? If you look at the sermon outline, you'll see the same kind of structure as you saw last week. I got those little indents in there, right, with the, the middle point, point four, being the furthest indented. That's the chiasm idea. And so we have an overlapping chiasm. Last week we read from the first verse of the book through chapter 2, verse 10, which was the end of Hannah's prayer. And Hannah's prayer and the beginning were similar, uh, Hannah's two prayers. Now this week we have the same kind of idea, but it starts with the first ten verses of the chapter that I, I did, decided not to read. But we remember Hannah's prayer, how she rejoices in God because he's cast down the proud and he lifts up the humble. That's the main gist of Hannah's prayer, right? Hannah has seen the corruption of Eli and his sons. She goes to the temple every year with her husband Elkanah. She sees all this going on, and she has done something about it. Hannah seeks different priests. So uh, one thing to, to remember here is that this prayer of Hannah's in these, these first ten verses, it, it's not just about the Philistines. And that's point number one there for you kids in the, in the bulletin. It's not just about the Philistines. And this is a tendency that we have as well as God's people is to focus on the Philistines, to focus on the wickedness out there in the world, and to forget that there's also something going on in the church. God is doing his main work in this world in the church and for the church. So Hannah is at this first uh, uh, section of, of, the, of chapter 2, the first 10 verses, it's a prophecy against Eli. Just as the man of God at the end of the chapter gives a prophecy against Eli. Hannah is seeking different priests. She wants Samuel to be in Eli's house and hopefully to replace these corrupt sons, which is exactly what happens. Hannah prays for it and it comes to pass. Her song in the first ten verses about casting down the strong is not just about the Philistines. It's about Hophni and Phinehas, who are doing awful, wicked things right in God's house. So, at the beginning and the end of this chapter, you have two prophecies against Eli's house. A prayer uh, rejoicing that God is going to cast down this corrupt priest's house, and then the prophecy at the end of, of the man of God. It's not just about the Philistines. Uh, are we working in the church to reform and purify the church as best we can, even as there's chaos going on all around us in our land? Very important. That's the first point. Second, we come to verse 11. That's where we began reading today, where we find young Samuel serving and growing. 
He's growing before the Lord, uh, and there's all kinds of ways to translate that. Uh, But it's not just in front of God, it's not just that God sees it, but it's with God's help, it's by being with God, all kinds of things. Samuel is growing, and that uh, refrain comes back several times, uh, and it's it's put in juxtaposition with the corrupt sons of Eli. So these, these sons of Eli are doing awful wicked things, but all the time Samuel's growing, he's learning. We'll come back to that theme uh, in, in, a, in a bit in the second uh, go-round of point two here. But he serves here. He ministers before the Lord. Verse 26 is the parallel where it says he grows. And there's a connection there. And kids, that's something important for you to listen, to, to hear for. That, that when, when you serve, when, when you help, then you grow. When you minister, when, when you help people around you, you grow. We grow when we serve. You know, Jesus talks about this. Do you want to be great? Then serve. Do you want to be first? Then start at the back of the line and serve. So Samuel is serving and growing. That's verse 11. And again, the parallel there is verse 26. It mentions it again, Samuel serving and growing. The third point, we come more to the description of the corruption of Eli's sons. They certainly had no qualms about wanting to be first. Uh, And here you have a contrast between Eli's sons and Hannah and her son. And it goes back to the first fruits concept again. Remember I mentioned that last time. Hannah gives Samuel the first fruit of her womb. Right? Hophni and Phinehas, on the other hand, are always taking the first. Right? And this is where Leviticus 7 comes back in. Leviticus 7 that we read says the fat has to go to God, you burn the sacrifice, and then you give these two portions to the priest. The Hophni and Phinehas are totally ignoring that and taking as much as they can before it's burned, the fat with it. So they're taking God's part and they're taking much of the people's part for themselves, far beyond what the law allowed. So that's how they're uh, breaking God's law. They're taking more than God said they could have. Uh, The people know the law. It's very fascinating. Where is it? Verse 16, I believe. Yes, if a man says to him, hey, they should really burn the fat first, right? Humbly making a petition to the, the, the church authority, hey, you really should be doing it this way. Because they know the law. And they apparently know it better than the priest does, or at least they want to follow it more than the priest does, right? So the people know, they confront the priest with it, as they should have, but what do you do when the priest willfully ignores the law? Well, today we can go find another church, right? But God had said, this is the place, this is the priest. This was a different kind of situation. Worship here. What do you do? And it's similar, I think, in, our, in the civil realm. There's a parallel here between the priest and the president, right? What do you do if you have civil leaders who are willfully ignoring God's law? Well, I, I guess we can move out of the country and try to find a more faithful country to be citizens of. That's typically not feasible for us. What do you do? That's part of the question, and we'll answer that on the back half of part point three here. So the, the corruption of Eli's sons is vividly described, and it, well, I'll save the next part for later. Uh, so the, the middle point now then is verse 18 through 21. Uh, here you have the, the center point. Samuel ministers before the Lord, mentions that again. He's wearing a linen ephod. We'll come to that in a moment. His mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year. 
Now, th this is both extremely endearing. But, you know, we love to, to read about this and to just imagine Hannah for a year making a, a robe, you know, hoping the size is right. And then you take it up to the temple. You give it to your boy who's living there. He's not with you. He's there at the temple, five years old, six years old, a robe every year. Very endearing. But there's also a huge theological point that Samuel is making here. The robe is, is the, the center point of this text. That's why we read from Zechariah 3. The high priest is clothed with a clean robe, right? Isaiah 61, the call to worship. God has clothed us with the robes of salvation. This is all over the Bible as a picture of our salvation. Uh, Samuel is the first mentioned in this book to wear a priestly robe. Not that Eli and his sons didn't wear them. But Samuel only mentions that, or yeah, the book of Samuel, the author, only mentions that Samuel wears a robe for the first time here, first person, because he's the only faithful one thus far. And that's part of the point. Someone has to put a robe on and be faithful and has to cover the sins of Israel. Someone has to be covered to do that. Who is that capable priest? So you see, this is completely the shape of the basic gospel that we see in all the rest of the Bible. Our, our sins laid out on display, the corruption of these priests, and then the robe and the one ministering faithfully, covering the sins of the people. Samuel's robe, the linen ephod. That's the uniform of the priest, by the way. Only the priests would wear an ephod. We see that later in the, in the text. Um, I can't find the verse right now. Somewhere around verse 28 Yes, I appointed your fathers, the house of Aaron, the man of God is saying. I appointed the house of Aaron to wear an ephod before me. The ephod is, was the, what the priest wore. So it's fascinating here that Samuel is given an ephod. Samuel is not a Levite. Samuel's from uh, uh, Elkanah's house. I, he's an Ephraimite from the tribe of Ephraim. Samuel is not yet 30 you had to be 30 to serve as a priest. So again, we have the theme of things are happening irregularly here. This doesn't seem quite right. And that's why we read from Hebrews chapter 11. Where the uh, 7, 9, which was it? Now I've forgotten the chapter number. We read from Hebrews 7, verse 11, uh, where the author says, Jesus was made our faithful high priest, even though he wasn't from Levi. And that was fine because there was a change of the law. So you have a, a pointer here, a foreshadowing of Christ in Samuel, who's, who's not yet 30 years old, who's not of the, the proper tribe. But God appoints him uh, as his special uh, uh, anointed Messiah for us. So uh, the one who's not of the tribe of Levi is going to faithfully commit, uh, uh, carry through the service of that tribe. Who's the capable priest? It turns out it's the Lord Jesus. He had to be made like his brethren in every way. Jesus is the faithful priest. Uh, now, in another sense, Revelation 7, it, when John has a vision in Revelation of the church in heaven, they all have white robes on, right? They're a kingdom of priests. That, that's said right at the very beginning of Revelation. God has made us a kingdom of priests, so we need a covering, and, and Christ hands out robes as we enter heaven with his obedience worn into the fabric. 
It's kind of the idea. Really, we've, we've been given that already. We're already covered, right? Dressed, the, uh, the classic hymn puts it, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. We need a covering. So God provided Adam and Eve with one. Remember at the beginning, he, he uh, sewed them uh, animal skins together and gave them a covering. Samuel's a faithful priest in contrast with Eli's sons. He's a picture of Christ. So we have a priest today. He ascended to heaven to intercede for us there with his father. Uh, the difference here is the, from the picture, Samuel, to the real thing, Jesus. Uh, Samuel it had to stand to minister in the heavenly, I mean, in the earthly sanctuary, right? Jesus, as he goes, ascends to the Father, we just had Ascension Day just recently, right? He sits at the Father's right hand. There's a powerful picture there. Uh, take an illustration here. Imagine a lawyer uh, arguing your case before the Supreme Court. Now, I don't know how much you know about the, the ins and outs of the Supreme Court. Would you imagine that a lawyer who's arguing a case before those nine justices sits or stands? You'd imagine he stands, right? And absolutely they do. They stand because there's, there's, a, there's an uncertainty about it, right? I want you to hear my case. I'm appealing to you. And there's an uncertainty there. He's unsure of the effectiveness of his intercessory work. He's hoping to persuade those judges, but maybe not. Maybe it'll go the other way. So that's one picture. Now take another picture. If, if you, kids, if your father has just told you to wash the car, and you did it, and then you come inside and you sit down next to him, are you out of line? No, you're not. You're confident with your status with your father as a faithful son. In the same way, we know that Jesus has been faithful to his father, that he is now sitting next to his father, asking him to be kind to us after he just went to the cross for us. This is our encouragement. We have a faithful priest. Samuel looks like such a savior next to Eli's sons. But he's nothing compared to Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. So we have a faithful priest, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Now with that gospel understanding, let's uh, go back to each of the other three points briefly. So point three, the corruption of Eli's sons. Uh, I find it striking, verse 22, how, how it's just kind of mentioned almost as an aside Verse 22, what Eli's sons do with the women who are gathered in the temple. It's fascinating to me. It's one of the questions I have. Why did you, God, why did you have it written that way? It seems like that should have been more central and upfront. Like, look at how bad these guys are. But the point isn't how bad these guys are. The point is that the priest God is uh, providing, I think. Anyway, uh, priests protect and they cover, right? Eli's sons are uncovering the women at the temple. There's the contrast again. Samuel is covering himself, has his robe on, and is ministering to the Lord. But he has not yet covered Israel. There's still a lot of wickedness going on that Samuel, at age 10, is not able to stop. Right? And that's a situation that we need to realize sometimes we are in as God's people. 
that, that may be our situation today. Maybe not, maybe. We, we need to consider that in wisdom. But we have the corruption of Eli's sons here. Eli, verse 23 to verse 25. Here you have a passionate plea. Again, extremely, what's the word? Uh, emotionally resonant, right? We really feel for Eli here. What are you doing, my sons? Don't do this. You know, these guys are adults, they're of age, they're serving as priests themselves. So this is, this is I don't know how old, 60-year-old Eli talking to his 40-year-old, 35-year-old sons. What are you doing? Don't go this way. But it turns out, if you read the whole chapter with the, with the man of God's rebuke, Eli's rebuke is too general. Eli doesn't, doesn't actually restrain the evil. Right? He's, he just talks about the reports that he hears. Why are you doing this? But then he doesn't do anything about it. Eli is still the high priest. Eli would be within his rights, perhaps not as a father of a 35-year-old to say, hey, do this, not that. You know, we, I think we have clear boundary lines there where we say as a, a father of an adult, the, the adult child needs to make their own decisions. But as high priest, Eli is failing. As high priest, he should have ordered his priests under him uh, to do uh, what was called for in the word. So, uh, this, this relates to uh, discipline and order in God's house and in each of our houses. They're, they're not actually restraining evil. Eli doesn't. Samuel doesn't either later with his sons. David later doesn't restrain evil in his sons. So, there's a, a problem there. Eli's rebuke itself becomes a rebuke of Eli. You've said what you know should happen, and now you're not doing it. No one's interceding for Israel. There's not a faithful priest. You've got wickedness in the sons. You've got abdication in the high priest, who just throws up his hands. Oh, well, fine, whatever. Wow. So, uh, no one's interceding for Israel. You have this corruption of Eli's sons. So, who intercedes for God's people today? Jesus, in the ultimate sense, of course. And also make application that there's a sense in which we all intercede for each other. Uh, we all do this. Uh, God has made us all priests, Revelation says. We can each approach the throne of grace directly through Christ. No other earthly priest is needed. And we can cover each other with our prayers, with our words of encouragement, our deeds of mercy for each other. We've gotten to know one another over the years. We know our, our own unique faults and weaknesses and the things that each of us needs. So we're able to pray specifically in certain ways, act in specific ways. I know this guy needs that. Let me figure out how I can do something for that. There are ways like that in which we can cover one another. Uh, and we're doing that as under-shepherds of Christ, of course. So the, the, that's one thing that we do in response to corruption, in response to weakness uh, in those around us. We intercede uh, at the throne of grace and prayer, and we act as we are able uh, to help one another. Uh, meanwhile, verse 26 again, young Samuel serves and grows. <laughs> The, the contrast there. And, and again, think of this. Once, once you've gotten the full picture of the corruption, and then you think of, I don't know how old, 8, 12, 16-year-old Samuel, 
growing up seeing all this and being a part of it. It really makes you wonder, is this really where God wants Samuel? How can Samuel grow and be faithful in such an environment? How could he hear God speak in such a corrupt place? That's what we see in the next chapter, right? The famous story of God speaking to Samuel. And it takes a little bit, right? But it's possible. With God, nothing is impossible. So, one point to make there is, would, would be that we are not called to isolate ourselves from the world. As long as we are not sinning by being in an imperfect situation, God may be calling us to stay there and serve Him. That's the old salt and light argument, and there's, there, there's a lot of truth to it. Of course, having young children in corrupt settings is not God's norm, right? This is an unusual situation with Samuel in this environment. But it does fit the pattern of God's chosen people being in irregular or dangerous situations. It happens throughout the Bible, right? Deborah judging the nation, leading the army. Uh, it, it, like someone not descended from Aaron, not yet 30, serving as priest. It's unusual. Uh, Abraham's wife, Sarah, when she's uh, taken into the Philistines' uh, harem, right? There you've got God's offspring in a dangerous situation. Happens throughout the Bible. Uh, Jesus, right, threatened by Herod and, and flees to Egypt. Happens all the time. It's part of the way God has his world work. Uh, he, and it, it's, it, we're uncertain what to make of that. One thing we know is that it moves us to trust him and to cry out to him. Lord, we depend on you for, for you to advance your agenda. There's nothing we can, no lever we can pull to make sure this happens. You've got to make sure it happens. And so we cry out to God. That's something else to do in response to corruption in our society. Well, last point, the prophecy against Eli. Uh, the man of God's rebuke focuses on Eli's house falling. Focuses on God building a new house in the future. You see, the, the sign of a falling house is a lack of discipline and order, where sons do not listen to their fathers, where fathers don't do anything about it. That's Eli's house. He's indulgent. He honors his sons above the Lord. And that's quite a statement. And it's, it's profound right after Eli's, uh, in word, great rebuke to his sons, Right? It's a real reminder to us as fathers. We can think all the right things. We can know all the right things. We can say all the right things. But what we actually do, what, what, how we actually order our house, matters a great deal. And so uh, Eli is rebuked here. <clears throat> and you see this sometimes, don't you, in, um, in grandparenting. Some of you are grandparents now. There's all the, you know, when, I, when we've uh, toured on vacations, there's always the, the little tourist trap kind of places. And many of them often have the, the signs on the, on the boards or on the mugs that have something to do with grandparents, right? One I saw one time said, I'd do anything for my grandkids, especially spoil them, right? Sometimes grand, grandparents take delight in spoiling their kids. But there's something messed up with that that we've got to watch out for. That's, that's this natural impulse in us as grandparents to want to do that. But we've got to watch out for that. Uh, and it's the same with parents, I think, on the other side. Parents often are too hard on their little kids. And then when we flip and we have grandkids, we are often too indulgent 
with them. It's hard to find the, the right middle ground there. Eli here is obviously being too easy on his sons. Right? He's, he's saying the right thing, but he's letting them do what they want. Who's the faithful priest? It's not Eli. It may be Samuel, perhaps, in the short term. But Samuel dies before another house is built. No building, his sons are corrupt, and he dies. And he dies also with uh, King Saul in charge, who's going downhill fast. So Samuel dies not seeing the fulfillment of the house that God promises him. So uh, who is the faithful priest? Uh, you, when you think about the history of Israel th th at this point, uh, when, when uh, Samuel dies, you have another priestly family put in charge when Solomon's temple comes about. But that new priestly family, also of the house of Aaron, is also not faithful. They have a king of Israel come along who go, visits a Philistine land one day and says, wow, that's a really cool temple. I want to build one like that in Jerusalem. So he gets the blueprints for this pagan temple, brings it back to the priest in Jerusalem, says, hey, build me this temple. I think it's really cool. I want to worship like this. And the priest says, okay. Completely unfaithful, cowardly. He doesn't stand up and say, God's word says we've got to do it this way. More unfaithful priests all throughout the history of Israel. Who is the faithful one to intercede? Can any father do it right to win his children's salvation? Can any mother? The Bible tells us what faithfulness looks like as a father, and we pursue that hard, and that is good, and that's a covenant blessing that God gives. But we need God's anointed son to intercede to save us. So this rebuke of Eli uh, can hit us hard, especially on Father's Day. We need to be faithful. We know we're not. But God's grace makes up for it. We have a faithful priest to intercede for the failings of fathers and of mothers and of ourselves. So we respond to corruption. Just apply this in, in four ways, how to respond to corruption. And I'll be looking back to Psalm 37 for some of this too. Psalm 37 is just a wonderful psalm for our times. What would you do as part of Elkanah's house? Going up to the temple year after year, seeing your offering wrongly taken by a priest. It, it, it's just amazing what you see there. I, I hesitate to say this. I think it's a little irreverent, but I guess I'll do it just to give you kind of the picture. Translate that whole three-pronged hook thing into the flesh pot sacrifice thing, right? It would kind of like be me when the offering box is brought up as we're singing, just walking up and taking, a, taking most of that and put it in my own pockets. That's what's going on. It's just horrendous. But what do you do when something like that happens? Well, first you say it's time for a new minister. <laughs> That's the first thing you say. Or time to start a new temple. Well, Shiloh was the place. So what do you do? So a couple of thoughts on that. Number one, Samuel distances himself from unfaithful ways. And we should too, as much as we can. Samuel pursues a different life of godliness, and so should we. We have all this social distancing going on right now to not pass germs, right? And some of that is helpful and needed, uh, but we have to be careful with that. We, we need to, in a spiritual sense, 
Uh, we don't avoid uh, rubbing shoulders with people who aren't believers just because we might catch some spiritual germs, right? That, that's not how this works. We don't isolate. We're like Daniel in Babylon, perhaps, who doesn't just immigrate and say, I'm out of here. This is too wicked. You need to say something when you can to indicate that you don't support the many things going on in the world today that go against God's word. We can speak. We can distance ourselves in various ways. But when you come, here's the second point. When you come face to face with corruption, anger is a natural response. Talked about this already, but Psalm 37 says, do not fret. Cease from anger. Remember that we're in the middle of God's story, otherwise called history. We're not at the end, right? When things go wrong in the story, we don't have to act like this is the last chapter, like it's over, like we lost, right? We better help the author rewrite the ending. No, not, not like that. It isn't over yet. Stories are supposed to have things go wrong. That's the way God set this up. If God has commanded a worship to be done a certain way, but many of God's people are not being faithful, it doesn't mean the world is falling apart. It is a big deal. But what holds the world together? Our faithfulness? No. The author of our faith, Jesus Christ, holds the world together. Colossians 1.17 says. So that's the second thing. Don't lose your head. Don't fret. Don't get angry. God's writing his story his way. That's the second thing. The third thing is to look to Christ to save. We can simply be meek before the Lord, Psalm 37 says. He will vindicate himself. The meek will inherit the earth. Now, meek doesn't mean weak, right? Meek means before God. Be meek before God. Let God write the story, right? Jesus cleanses the temple, and Jesus was meek. So there are times to note the corruption, and if you have the power to do something about it, go after it and cleanse it. Uh, My favorite story of that in the last generation or so is Al Mohler. I don't know if you know the story about Al Mohler when he was a young man, I think around 30 or 35. He was tasked with going into Southwestern Seminary and purging out the liberalism that was there. And he did it. He went after it with like, like gangbusters and fired half the faculty who were denying the deity of Christ and the virgin birth and all kinds of nonsense and installed in their faculty members who were not only subscribing to Orthodox Christian doctrine, but eager to teach it. That's often his distinction. I want faculty who are eager and celebrating these things, not just subscribing to them. That's how we ought to be. So you can be meek and also reform vigorously like that. And we ought to, we ought to um, seek that and carry that out in our families, in our churches. So. The meek uh, cleanses the temple sometimes. The meek does not envy sinners. Samuel had plenty of occasion, I would say, to envy Hophni and Phinehas. These guys are doing whatever they want. They're eating great. They can do anything. Samuel must have been tempted sometimes to envy them. Psalm 37 says, don't do that. The wicked are going the wrong way. They're going to see their day. Follow me. So look to Christ to save. And, and we wait in the Lord. We wait on the Lord. Now, this is not doing nothing, right? The, here you have the whole biding your time kind of point. This is the last point this morning. Uh, Samuel grew before the Lord, right? Hophni and Phinehas are grabbing sacrifices and doing awful things uh, with people in the temple. 
you'd think that the, what we want to do is stop that right now. But over and over, the text says, Samuel grew. Samuel grew. God's time was coming. This doesn't mean we do nothing. Samuel is active. He's learning by doing. He's learning by observing others. Right? He looks at Eli's sons and he learns what not to do. <laughs> so the last point I would have for you as we wait on the Lord is look around in your life for good examples and for bad examples. This is one reason I think it's important for Christians to stay in touch with the news and with what's going on. Because we'll find examples there, good and bad. Hey, that leader's, go, they're going the right way. How can I incorporate that into what I'm doing? Look around for examples, good and bad. Maybe your father's a good example. Some of us have bad examples for fathers. And we have to be careful to continue to honor them, but also to learn from them how we can serve God the best. Samuel does not actively seek the downfall of these corrupt priests. It's not his time yet. He lives well before the Lord. He provides the people with a way to the Lord. He's a, he's a small light shining in a dark temple. And the people can find the Lord there because of him. So we are to be light shining in a dark world, pointing people to Christ. We live differently from the darkness. So Samuel is a picture of the faithful priest who intercedes for us with the Father. Let's call on his name. Let's give him glory as we now go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that you have provided us with a faithful priest to intercede for us. We thank you for giving us godly examples in our fathers and mothers or in those who have come into our lives to, uh, to mentor us, to raise us, and to nurture us. We thank you, Lord, that you have given to us also bad examples. Lord, help us to respond appropriately to those, to learn the lessons you have to teach us, to not speak evil of our rulers, to honor those in authority over us, and also, Lord, to seek for reform and for justice as hard as we can. Lord, we thank you that you have uh, given to us uh, families and churches and nations, uh, these, uh, these uh, structures, these social structures to, uh, to nourish us, uh, to grow us. Lord, the point of it all is to grow in faith and in love uh, for Jesus Christ, to glorify you, uh, to enjoy you forever. Uh, give us grace to do this as we rest on this Lord's day. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, and we sing as he taught us to pray. for our communion exhortation. What man is there among you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God the Father provides a table for us here each week. As fathers, we know how to give our children good things, things that are good for them. How much more does God? What he gives, he is always working together for our good. That can be harder to see when it's corruption in society, when it's in our own lives. 
But God has overcome it at the cross, where he paid for every sin for all of his people. So when our debt was heavy, the Father has given us 100% debt forgiveness. He's given us a king to rule and defend us. He's given us his spirit to lead us into all truth. He's given us his word and the sacraments and one another. Here at this table, we see the one who God gave to intercede for us, Jesus the Christ. Come, for all things are now ready. These are gifts of God for the people of God. The body of Christ broken for you. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.